Dipanuda, uh, your mission at Sarsero is to transform lives through the most effective use of the world's scientific knowledge. And you have two products now in the market. So how about we start with a brief overview of what kind of problems these products solve and why these problems are important. Um, Artem, thank you very much for the invitation and the opportunity to chat with you about what we're building at Sorcero today. Um, Sorcero was started because we saw a uniformly mission-critical problem across life sciences, which is that the team that is tasked with collecting all of the data, internal and external, uh, about their products, their efficacy, safety, uses, and then collect it, analyze it, and distribute it to both internal and external audiences. And this team is called Medical Affairs. They did not have the workflow, the tools, or the analytics workbenches that they would need to serve this mission. At the same time, we all know that life sciences as a market is becoming more and more data-driven, where both prescribing behavior as well as paying behavior is being driven by the data on the drug and their efficacy and suitability for that particular use case and even that particular patient. So being unable to fulfill that data mission at scale really hampers our customers from fulfilling their mission, which is saving patient lives. Um, and that's what Sorcero, and that's why Sorcero exists. We are an analytics platform and a, in specifically a medical analytics platform for life sciences companies. Our customers use us to monitor the field, to have situational awareness, to have, to have competitive intelligence, but more important and more interestingly, to understand how their products are doing in market, where there may be gaps in the data backing the use of their products, and how and when and to whom they can share that data, which is scientific and medical in nature, so that their target patient populations get the best treatment in a timely manner and are able to pay for it. What would be some of the good examples of potential customers or actual customers? And maybe we can look at the problem through the lens of how do they address these issues without Sorcerer now? Sure. Um, I think that's a great question. So our customers are tier one, tier two pharma companies with usually multiple products in market uh, across therapeutic areas such as oncology, neurology, hematology, et cetera. So we're agnostic um, of therapeutic area. Uh, that, that would be the largest customer base. So we have two products in market, as Artem mentioned. Our first product, which went to market in early 2021, is called Intelligent Publication Monitoring. Publications remains one of the biggest sources of data and information for our customers. And publications span researchers as well as physicians um, and can really tell them what, how their products are doing, again, where there are gaps in evidence, and even if there are any dosage issues or adverse events or safety concerns emerging from those products. So intelligent publication monitoring is a business user-facing application that is used by both top-tier pharma as well as some early-stage public biotechs to understand and know and track their field, their asset, their molecule, or their drug focused on the literature uh, data or the literature-based data. As of um, 
a few weeks ago. We are also now the largest open access scientific literature database in the world. So we're not just bringing the journals you know, but we're actually covering local journals from across the world, making sure that our customers have a truly comprehensive overview of everyone who might be working on that particular disease area and might even be working with their particular product set. So that's IPM in a nutshell. It is not a search tool. It's actually an end-to-end workbench. One of the most important things that our customer base in medical affairs is missing today is workflow. So to, to answer your initial question about how are they doing this work today, they're doing it by searching one by one in different search engines, sometimes a point solution, assembling that in Excel sheets and PowerPoints and PDFs, sometimes dumping it into their document repositories, and then writing reports. This is done both by internal teams as well as outsourced teams. One of the other things you will find is a lot of this work is being done by specialty consultants in specialty consulting firms that are pretty massive. And both these external consulting teams as well as the internal teams are unable to scale any further. They're unable to speed up and handle the fact that you know healthcare data at large is growing at a 39% CAGR. And even more important, they are lacking comprehensiveness and timeliness. So in a market where data can lose you a million dollars a day in revenue and also impact patient lives, having timely, scalable systems that can keep up with the pace of content, the pace of regulatory, and the pace of demand from your end customers for data, absolutely essential. And that's really what Sorcero supports with both IPM as well as MIM. Uh, before I jump into MIM, Artem, do you want to dig in any more in, in what I was just talking about? Yeah, I think the picture you paint with those consultants or in-house people working on going through the literature manually, it does sound like two things to me. The first one, it's not a very fun thing, thing to do for the people. Not if you have an MD-PhD, particularly. Especially. So... And it seems like they should have some potential issue with hiring people for those roles. And the second one, linked with the PhDs as well, is that it should be real expensive to do this work that way. Is that is. Uh, the way it is? Yeah, um, nodding vigorously. So I think two things. There is a data point on this. There are only about 600 MD-PhDs with that right set of qualifications that can that even are created every year, I think, in the US. So really not that many of them. They're expensive to their employer. Fully loaded, you're looking at a cost per employee of over $300,000 a year. So being able to augment and amplify their expertise and keep them focused on engaging with healthcare providers, with KOLs, with patient advocacy groups, whoever it may be, um, and keeping them focused on being able to analyze the data rather than having to label it or hunt around in 15 different data streams, absolutely essential. Um, I think it's also important here to uh, draw out or, or to remind folks of the fact that if you were in retail, you would have a voice of customer platform. It is considered absolutely essential to know everything from footfall to web traffic to mood to propensity scoring. We have uh, you know thousands of data points per target customer on how to get them to buy your product and then buy more of it, right? And 
and we have this for shoes. The fact that we don't have that level of specific targeted analytics around how to treat patients better and how to give them the best combination therapies, and that's a big one right now, is both personalized medicine and combination therapies in a timely manner. That also seems like a bit of a market failing in terms of what are we focusing on. So it's both the inefficiency and the expensiveness, but also from a mission standpoint, this is something that's a must have. It is absolutely a must have. It takes time uh, for different industries to get to that stage. And maybe e-commerce or retail in general was a bit uh, sooner there. But you're right, and I think uh, we should see it across the board, and especially in such an important uh, industry as healthcare or life sciences overall. <laughs> and now in terms of uh, replacing some of that manual effort, or I would even say improving on that manual effort by introducing the product, what kind of results uh, your customers see when implementing Sarcero for sure. Analysis of the literature. So we uh, measure ROI in a short, medium term, and then long term implications for our customers. The first thing they see is reduction in time spent. So, and we published on this with a few of our customers, but our literature monitoring product reduced time to review and create reports by 88%. Um, so that's a, that's a massive jump. Just out the gate, you are now looking at what you only should look at. You understand why you're looking at it. You're able to click a couple of buttons and create a draft PDF that you can take to find, you know, can take to completion and share it. So that piece, really important. We're also seeing massive cost reduction for our end customers because the only way this could problem could be solved was just piling on people. So in a market and in an industry that belt tightening is still an important thing, having cost-effective solutions where they can still continue to do what they have to do, but in a cost-effective manner, very essential. So there's a cost-saving element to that. <laughs> then we start to move into slightly more strategic goals or strategic ROI. The first, the next thing that people talk to us about is unification of data. So, so far, they were able to consider a single data stream at a time. At this point in time with Sorcero, and particularly with our medical insights management product, which gives our customers an omni-channel view, they're able to unify internal and external data sources, combine their CRM notes from their field medical teams with literature, with social, with congresses, with ad board summaries. And that data unification gives them a comprehensive outlook and actually gives them a better quality of signal on where to look at and why. So that piece comes up. And then the third is really interesting is probably, you know, the, the real moneymaker, as it were, is strategic signals. So signals, just new information that you are now able to access because there are novel ways of looking at the data. And that is true for both IPM as well as for MIM where our customers can, again, over the period of time of using this and truly embedding us into their system, start to generate novel insights, tell different stories with the data. And it could come up, and, and here are a couple of examples of what a novel insight could mean. Number one, a combination therapy. You find out that physicians are using your drug in combination with another company's drug to treat a particular patient population that was not maybe indicated or caught, you know, 
known at the point the drug was commercialized. Number two, and you know, it takes about $1.7 billion to take a drug to market, and you have about 10 years to make the most of your patent. So one of the other very important things is new indications and new labels. So you find out that physicians are prescribing your drug for quote-unquote off-label use. If there is enough data backing that use, that's a new label. That then is a new revenue line. That piece is really important. If you're a large pharma company, you're constantly looking for innovation to partner with to buy. So being able to monitor that and find matches for, you know, find a matching molecule that someone's working on, really essential, could also be a novel signal. So this is what I mean about a uh, immediate time reduction, cost reduction, speed, medium-term comprehensive coverage, longer-term catching on to novel signals, novel information, novel ways of looking at data that gives you a strategic edge. It's like having an army of analysts working on your behalf relentlessly to uncover those extra data points, bring it to you. And uh, it was definitely impossible before because that will be too expensive or too inefficient, uh, not even even practical at all. And uh, with the tool, uh, with the Cercero, it looks like you finally can get at least initial taste of what it can work like and then build on on it to expand your ability to monitor everything that happens, the world around you. That sounds cool. That's correct. Let's talk about the second product. How did it come to be? What are the main benefits there? Sure. So the second uh, product is called Medical Insights Management. I will draw your attention to two words, both medical and insights. Medical, again, very specifically calls out our customer. Our customer, that is medical affairs and scientific affairs, and one of the only teams in a pharma company that can talk about science and medicine directly with physicians. That's not true of the commercial team at all. Commercial teams have to stay stuck to the approved messaging. But a medical affairs liaison or a medical affairs director is an MD-PhD and is qualified and sanctioned to talk about medicine to a physician. Very, very important. They are thus looking at analytics very differently. So their analytics are not about how many calls did I have or what geography did I cover that's important, but they care about what did this physician talk about? What is it telling me about their experience with my drug? That's what they care about. Um, Medical insights management. So that's medical. Insights in this case, uh, append very closely to the concept of a strategic imperative. Technical term, this is all that means, is I care about information on dosage, on adverse effects, on combination therapies, on competition. Maybe there are like about five or six things that are of strategic importance to my company. And I want to look at all of the observations, cluster them, bundle them, and figure out what is happening in the field for each of these categories. So medical insights management is the first of its kind. It's truly omni-channel in that it unifies all of the data across internal and external, structured and unstructured. It enriches it and gives you this very uh, enriched content repository where where you then have a workflow by which you have an AI-assisted process of clustering all those raw observations into pre-insights 
appending them to a imperative and then having a human being sign off on it. And that's the insight that then informs a decision, potential new investigator-led initiative, potential new label, potential safety concern. All of that comes out of insights management. So that's medical insights management. Um, immediate value that our customers are finding is being actually able to analyze those CRM notes at scale. And that's been pretty interesting. Uh, so th- the first few customers on MIM, and MIM just went to market in October. It's very, very new, and it's it's already like over 60% of our pipeline. So I'm very excited to see how the market responds to it, uses it, and you know what feedback we get. But the early feedback, they're particularly excited about being able to scan and visualize and understand those CRM notes that have been somewhat lost. They're excited about the data unification piece. Again, not something most folks can offer. Gives them more comprehensiveness. They're really excited about having an AI as an aid. So that first round of clustering that our our AI services power, they're really excited about that because that helps them scale up and speed up. And last is narrative dashboards. You know, dashboards is a tired word, but it can from a functional standpoint, present information that is very useful to them. So they're able to do long-term stuff, you know, they're they're able to do more longitudinal storytelling and more longitudinal analysis because having MIM running for a year across all of your data streams just gives you incredible richness. So that's MIM in a nutshell. Again, MIM is very much is targeted towards the post-commercial customer. MIM becomes relevant about 18 months before you go to market all the way through. Excellent. Thanks a lot for the overview. I think we'll talk a little bit more about how did you decide that it's right time to introduce a new product to the market and uh, these other repercussions of this decision. But before we go there, let's talk a little bit about the AI systems powering Sorcero capabilities. And uh, I think let's start with the question, were there any specific innovations in AI that you saw before you started Sorcero that you said, yeah, now it's possible. Now we can do what we want to do. And that triggered this opportunity for you. Um, I, yes, actually, very much so. So obviously, one of the things I'd been looking at for a long time is the specificity of this kind of medical and scientific language. It is not you know, colloquial English. And not only is it somewhat gnarly and dense, but a mistake cannot be allowed. And you know, even, even simple things like sentiment don't mean the same thing when you look at medical. Um, so I would say the, the first thing was, you know, back in 2018, we looked at LLMs as one, uh, you know, a baseline tool that gave us the ability to start working on language more seriously. Of course, an LLM needs to be tuned many times over, and that's where much of our innovation lies, is in making it usable for industry. But that's a piece that was important. Transfer learning models, as they became more commercially applicable, were also important. So I would call those two things out. In addition to that, Sorcero's innovations have been a lot in the in the space, and that's also where our, some of our patent portfolio lies, is in hierarchical ontologies. And how do you take a base layer of an ontology and start to tune it to a point that it is very specific to a customer? So our AI, we have about five to seven AI services that power various features in our products. 
everything from ontological tagging and clustering and topic modeling, but also a really standout auto summarization. Y'all, you know, y'all should go to the website and take our little mini Turing test. It's really fun to do. Um, but auto summarization, which has been a really, really big one. Um, also various kinds of evolved semantic search. Uh, all of these things then end up powering our, our many product features across both our applications. Were you able to get something from the commercial market or did you have to take open source models, open source systems and fine tune them in-house? We used... Well, I wouldn't call it commercial market. I would say more the government nonprofit space where they do a lot of work on ontologies, particularly, you know, we definitely benefited from that, the National Library of Medicine and so on and so forth. The models, though, definitely open source in this case were the best ones and th those those have been fine. And then our, our cloud, we do use a bunch of ML ops tooling that comes with the cloud, but from a model perspective, they've largely been open source, even though across different creators. And uh, yeah, the cloud and the MLOps commercial from one of the big cloud providers. Correct. Okay. Yeah. MLOps, not a solved problem. MLOps, not a solved problem. Uh, there, <laughs> there are so many companies addressing it, coming from so many different angles. What were the what, what what are the biggest challenges right now I with mean, MLOps? I feel hopelessly. Uh, I feel like this should get punted to my MLOps team so they can properly complain. Um, but what I hear, and this is important, is you know just sort of deploying it, maintaining it. So the difference between an R and D team that's doing some core innovation and the MLOps team that's going to actually have to run it, maintain it, benchmark it, improve it. The, just the tool set for that is non. It, it's not easy and it's not like a, it's not a plug, it's not a plug and play system quite yet. There is a, a, a ways to go. Of course, also not all models are the same, right? Like um, every time we tune a model and we use ontologies, we're developing our own systems for model tuning, which then have to map to the MLOps and for, there's a, there's a beast there. But I, I do think that we're seeing some excited thing, exciting things happening in the market. I'm excited that there is so much focus on MLOps. I think it's going to be essential for true innovation that is AI-powered to touch and to solve business problems. It just is going to be essential. So it's really good to see it. But yeah, my team's still you know, powering through. <laughs> sure. We're still in the very early days uh, of MLOps, for sure, because they always kind of one step behind the innovation in AI, new models come out, uh, but it takes time then to operationalize their use and develop all the tools needed. And then, of course, they also have this issue of uh, making sure the market is there for them because lots of organizations aren't there, frankly, yet to start utilizing mm -hmm. AI models. Correct. And so it's hard to sell MLOps tools to organizations that are still only kind of testing the waters in terms of the AI. Uh, but the, yeah, it's, uh, it's growing uh, and it's uh, exciting to see more and more innovation there. In terms of the Absolutely. biggest challenges faced and overcame by your team so far in building your AI stack, what would you say were those? I think my answer is going to be part 
part practical, part a little bit philosophical. Um, I think the first thing is there is often a delta, not often, there is always a delta between solving a technical problem and solving a business problem. And often the teams that are tasked with solving a technical problem, particularly in this case, using AI, ML, just sort of that family of technologies, um, are sometimes a little too separated from the business problem. So I would say one of the things we learned the hard way is what is done and what is production grade from a technical perspective or even a quote-unquote academic perspective in the world of AI versus what could really solve a business problem and move the needle forward, pretty serious delta there. And I think in the early days, we we certainly, and I'm sure this is true of many companies, over-indexed on the AI needs to be X, Y, and Z, and then it needs to grow an arm and a leg of its own, and then it has to go like beat everyone at Go, and only then is it useful. So I think that moderation and that constant uh, push and pull, important and definitely created some struggles. Um, I think the other thing is uh, we experienced, like everyone else, that there is, again, a delta between demoing something and then having it power a product feature at scale. So again, you know, the difference between a single AI-powered service vis-a-vis or a single AI service vis-a-vis like a bunch of different services that are really powering features. Quite different from a, you know, benchmarking perspective to a maintenance perspective to what does the backend UX UI need to look like. Um, I think third, that was really interesting that, uh, or at least I found very interesting is building trust. So how do you build trust? And I think we had some we went through our own journey with this with with various customers where first they'd do a pilot and they'd be like, well, I want to check off on everything that the AI is suggesting by hand. So I'm like, so you want me to generate an Excel sheet that you're going to go through line by line? Yes. And if even one is wrong, it's doomed, right? So this, again, this building trust and expectations where a human system is wrong, like, you know, is right maybe 89% of the time, but the machine has to be right 100%. I think the experience of building trust and then baking that into UX, but also that informing our uh, our benchmarking work, fascinating. But the biggest chasm remains, of course, between the academic understanding of AI and what a system needs to do and the definitions for that, all of which holds true. And then what's going to solve a business problem today? Quite, quite different. Absolutely. This is the line that goes through, I think, lots of my conversations with founders that taking a model that has been described in some paper with the results that have been achieved there is nothing. It's like 1% of what needs to be done before you actually can deploy this model in production to achieve results with the in-production environment, with an, uh, with the data that is not perfect, uh, with the, all the other parts of the systems working together and that need to and be able to communicate well. This is not an easy thing at all. So 100% agree with you here. And uh, on the other notes, 
on the on the other points you mentioned about AI team kind of being a little bit separated and then also kind of trying to build a perfect AI before it's ready to be used. It's also an overcomplicated things. These are also very important things to watch out for and make sure you don't kind of let yourself dive or I don't know, drown in. Uh, <laughs> and you need always to, yeah, to remember that it's just a tool and this is the customer value is the end goal you're working towards. When you look at the current state, I, I'm sure uh, MLOps is one of the wish list points. What are the other important things team wants to improve in AI systems capabilities going forward? I think that's an interesting question. I can tell you what I am looking at. It may be a little bit different answer than my AI team would give, which is totally fine. Um, <laughs> I would like a little less hype about everything. It, it, it's really, really helpful. So I kind of understanding what a new innovation can actually affect in a business setting today, before you say all our jobs are gone or, or we've all got our jobs back or we're, you know, it's, it's very distracting. It's just really distracting and it distracts everyone in the team. And I, I remember when, uh, gosh, I'm forgetting the name Galactica, I think. Yeah. Galactica or Galactic was released. I got like a flurry of emails about, oh my God, was I'm just like, it is completely, I don't even understand how it's related to. So I think that it would be, be really helpful and a lot less distracting both to my AI team who often have to start digging into all of this stuff and answering questions from people because they're just, they just don't know how to wrap their brain around it. So half the time I'm like, okay, guys, you need to, you know, write out an analysis of all of these things that are happening in the world of AI vaguely and whether it's going to kill us or not or help us or not or what are the implications of it on the business. And I'd rather they be like, you know, I don't know, building models and maintaining them or pushing them out to production. So that's been a little bit like, uh, it's been annoying. It's great, but it's also these hype cycles in AI are just very, very distracting. So that's my, just from my perspective, that, that just really comes back to me. For sure. The, the hype sells views and, uh, the rational measured approach to news does not bring clicks and views. And so we kind of inevitably hey, find now we ourselves. Have generative AI. So that's the new one. <laughs> yeah. This is a new, uh, this is a new cool tool that you can generate hype about on a daily basis, <laughs> especially using itself. To generate that same hype, which that's is even better. It's yeah, that's even better. Generate hype. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just you just write something like, put together a viral article about how how generative AI will do X, and you get it. Absolutely. Although I will say, um, for us, and then we should move on to our next topic. One of the interesting things we found is. This generative, one of these generative AI tools managed to generate fake, real sounding enough fake science that it started to fool scientists. 
So, you know, us having to engage with it. So I might be being sarcastic and laughing about it, but it's also true that it has to be engaged with. So it's not that. And and it's really our role as companies and as people who are working with this kind of tooling every day to also sober as required or reason as required. So, yes, it is annoying, but it also needs to be done. Absolutely. And on that note, did you see so far or did you have a time to think through the implications for Cercero on, for the generative AI? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've been using generative AI approaches for, for some time, like a lot of some of our work, particularly on summarization is generative, it's extractive and it's generative. So uh, we see that as another potential useful tool in our toolbox, another sort of general large scale model that may teach us and give us different approaches to solve our business problems. Uh, For us, of course, we have to keep in mind that every word and every comma means something very, very, very specific. So there is a long path between, there's a long road between something cool coming out and us pushing it out as a product feature. But we are engaging with our customers on how they feel about these kinds of tooling, whether they'll have trust in it, and also how much tuning it will require for us to use it in, you know, plain language summaries or just an auto summarization. Yeah, for sure, it's going to be an important part of every AI systems. It's clear. Yeah, now it's all jokes and fun and games and gimmicks, but it's uh, extremely powerful technology that will be used everywhere across the fields where AI is being used. Let's switch to personal journey. Yeah, and I think if you could tell us a bit about your journey before Cercero and what was the trigger that led you to start the company? Um, so I've had many jobs and, and have touched many fields. Uh, and I have more recently learned to own that. You know, as a South Asian, you're supposed to have decided what you're going to be at 100 when you're 14. And it's usually a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. And since I eschewed all three of them, I'm very much in the bad camp. But uh, uh, academically, my background's in a combination of uh, history, law, and, and kind of public policy. Um, and by and large, I have always tried to study the impact of technology on humans and human systems. That's always been um, a thread. I... Previous to Sorcero, uh, I founded and I ran a consulting firm based out of Washington, D.C., which, amongst other things, were tasked with building digital scientific platforms, which is a phrase that is very used in our industry now, uh, which are usually co- communication platforms that would have to communicate a combination of quant- you know, uh, qualitative and quantitative data on health outcomes, on legislative processes, et cetera, uh, to a very broad-based uh, stakeholder group, you know, farmers, legislators, advocates. Um, and that's really what got me into the content type. So in this particular kind of work that we do in our field, it deals with legal, deals with financial, it deals with medical, it deals with numeric data. It, it's a very interesting data type. And it's also one that is startlingly complex to handle at scale. So that got me into like the data problem. A lot of my work over the last four years before Sorcero had also been in, in public health and in health um, broadly. So I wanted to stay in that space. Every single one of us are patients. 
And most of us don't actually know how we're actually being treated and how these decisions are being made behind our treatments. And I was very, very curious about that, even intellectually, about how my parents were getting going to be treated or how I am being treated. So that that sort of stuff. Um, I I think the more interesting story is why I decided to start a company because, you know, there are many ways of solving a problem and you don't always have to have a startup to solve it. Um, but what kind of excited me about Sorcero and this opportunity was it was a, a it was a combination of an opportunity to actually build infrastructure for a content type and for a particular set of strategic industries, which means it's scalable, it's reusable, you can do a lot of great things with it. And I'm a big infrastructure engine generally systems fan. And then that opportunity to also serve life sciences directly, which married my passion and the things that I care about in, in you know, doing quote unquote good for the world. That's why I started Sorcero. It was a combination of infrastructure nerd and can solve a problem in a particular industry that is truly meaningful. That infrastructure nerdness. Does it come from your family or from some early passions? Where does it come from? <laughs> um, on reflection, I think it's a combination of family. So, you know, uh, my father was a bureaucrat. My grandfather was a bureaucrat. My mom ended up as a bureaucrat also, even though she's a physicist by training. Uh, and I think that and they've also, you know, they, they've worked in large, complex systems painstakingly making change, sometimes over decades, a lot longer than any startup is typically afforded. Um, and I've seen them work through it, but it also, it's also the kind of scale that most people just absolutely dream about. You know, it could take you 15 years to pass a piece of legislation, but it can also impact a billion lives on that one day. And then when you compare a billion lives and 15 years, 15 years doesn't seem that long. Um, so I, I think I developed a real appreciation for, you know, the slow moving wheels of change that can also come with great scale from a very early age. I also think it comes from science fiction and kind of the books my mom fed me. Like you read Foundation at like 11 or 12, you know, your brain is completely turned upside down. Um, and I think it's that combination of, of the education I received, the books I read, but also seeing a family of people really dedicating their lives to changing systems, no matter how painful or slow. Was your mom a big fan or is your mom a big fan of uh, science fiction? She's a little more fantasy from what I am seeing. Actually, yeah, no, she doesn't like fantasy. She likes science, science fiction and murder mysteries. Okay. And so that's her passion. That's an interesting point you brought up that being exposed to science fiction early maybe changes your brain a little bit. And I wonder if someone ever tried to test this hypothesis and see how kids who were exposed versus kids who never were exposed to science fiction. It's I mean, very I interesting. When I talk to a lot of the other founders in the space, and I do find that there is a set of books and, and passions that seem somewhat um, common. And, you know, we all have different backgrounds. I mean, I also really like art or other stuff, but I think it just gives you an ability to, to think about a world that is far enough removed where your imagination is truly unbound. Um, you know, it's so divorced from reality that it's almost more real. Um, and you can truly inhabit it in your mind. And it makes you so much braver about saying, okay, sure, yeah, I'll build the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And it has been built. 
So, you know, also what do you think about that? But I, I, I would posit that uh, at a certain age, when you're unguided reading sci-fi, it does change how you look at the world, at least changed mine. Yeah, it definitely changed mine as well. And I'm curious if it's because we were that way already that it had such an effect on us or were we not exposed to science fiction in the early ages? Uh, would we still be that type of people we are right now? This is an interesting <laughs> question. I think it's a question worth pondering. Like a whole, you should you should do a you should do a review. You should like do a, a like a nice study on this. I'd be really intrigued. Yeah. Okay. And now you figured out that you want to start a company. How did you go about building your initial team? What kind of people you were looking for? What kind of qualities? And what a change between my answer then and my, I mean, my answer about then versus now as well. Um, so first and foremost, I was, I mean, I, even in back in 2018 or rather in 2017 and 16, when I started doing my research, one of the things that I noticed and caught on to was the, was the uh, justifiable skepticism around anything to do with AI. Right. And that still exists in the market. So I was looking for folks with credibility and with a real understanding of where these systems come from, not just what they do today, but a little bit of the history of where they come from, what initial problem sets were people looking at when they started building out these systems. Um, you know, I met Walter Bender, our co-founder and now chief scientific officer at a, at a dinner, um, and we just got talking about things that interested us. We talked about Yes, science fiction as one of the things that, you know, and, and drawing inspiration from certain products and approaches described in, in certain books we'd read and, and our passion for education and so forth. Um, and when I kind of described to him what I wanted to achieve in the world, which wasn't exactly this beautifully articulated business model, but what I wanted to achieve in the world, he was like, yeah, okay, cool. I want in. So I would say that our early team, uh, were a bunch of people who had enough credibility to make a good faith attempt to solve the problem, but might be approaching the problem more from an infrastructure standpoint than like a straight up business problem standpoint. Once we had solved some of the infrastructure challenges, which were not de minimis at all and needed time and money and effort and many rounds of mistakes to solve, uh, then we started changing the complexion of the team to now, if you look at the exec team, there is a lot more of the, I know how to build unstructured data analytics. I know how to do life sciences. I know how to handle this kind of a, you know, engineering organization. So that shifted a bunch. But my early team was all about united in vision, united in mission, and really excited about that particular problem set. And the, in a lot of sense, this initial team, it's hard to imagine it being a different way. Some, you cannot probably get the people who are already kind of understand the industry because they will come to you and they will ask you, like, what exactly are you offering? And you say, like, I'm not offering yet anything. I'm just like starting figuring out what it's going to be offering. And they may be like, okay, I have those other startups that are farther along already they know what they're offering so i maybe go and join them as an exec rather than a small team of people just trying to figure out what they're going to do so do you think it's by necessity should this 
a group of more of a uh, vision aligned than a industry aligned or a subject matter expert, or it can be in different types of groups depending on pure maybe chance. Um. I'm going to say sort of maybe three things about it. One is I've seen both kinds of teams build very successful companies, right? Like a team of tight-knit people who have experience in all the relevant areas and are solving a very specific problem that they're very familiar with. And you often see a certain degree of acceleration and clarity come in on the early days, uh, you know, which has its pros and cons. The pros, of course, being you have acceleration, clarity, and revenue in like year two, maybe, or even, you know, trending towards profitability in year four, all of this is incredible. But you also sometimes in these teams, because exceptions do prove the rule in this case, but um, you might find that they struggle to innovate or they struggle to bring in information from adjacent industries or adjacent verticals, which I still think is very important, is that analogous thinking is still a really important component to have in any organization, mature or immature. So I've seen those kinds of teams succeed a bunch. I think for me, I had a set of challenges. You know, I I just come to the States a few years ago. I had not gone to school here or worked here. So for me, it was also a lot of serendipity in who I was going to meet and whether they would align with me. So I probably, if I was doing it now, I might have taken a different approach and I probably would have taken a different approach, but I have a very different network set now. But, you know, then I was so, so new to the space I was leaning much more on vision alignment and so forth, knowing that if we got a solid core, I could then build that team around it of the people who know and have done it before and are just looking to scale. So that that those are like the two separate points of the comments about the teams that just know and really succeed and then why I chose this journey. And if you put me back in 2018, I might have done a version of this again. But the third point I... um. I I wanted to uh, sort of make about these teams is I do feel like certain folks are designed to go from zero to one and not everybody can do it. Many of those folks though, don't also like the, the two to 10. Um, they want to be in this crappy environment where you can have their fingers in multiple pies, where processes isn't the first thing you're thinking about, where things are much more by the skin of your teeth And they're okay with it. They love it. There's a resilience in them around that. But, you know, once things are on rails, they don't, they're not that intellectually engaged anymore. And I, I certainly know there are folks on my team who are going to be a lot less excited about scale than I will, but there are personalities here to consider as well. Right. So on on that side, making sure that you start with the people who are the best fit for the zero to one stage and not the other group who may be great, who maybe will shine at one to hundred, yeah. but And I've uh, definitely made struggle. mistakes in that regard, kind of bringing in the two to 10 people too early and then like them not being able to succeed in this particular kind of environment. Um, and I've seen that happen and it's, it's not fun uh, for either party. So I think just that, just kind of knowing is this personality going to love it and succeed and knock it out of the park versus they're really not going to love it and thus no one else will either. Do you think it's possible to realize that, understand it before you 
bring this person on, what kind of person they will be? I think so. I think I'm, I would do a much better job of it today than I would have a few years ago. And that's been my personal learning journey as well. Uh, but yeah, you know, if you kind of look at where where they have been at, but not just where, but at what stage, what do they actually do there? Which I think a lot of people forget to ask, right? You, know, you just have a big brand, but the first 50 at big brand versus the thousandth person at big brand, very different. So um, I now know what to look for. And if, if I'm scaling my, if I'm starting to build out my commercial org, I want the people who are first 50, not number 1,000. It just won't, they won't bring the same things to the table. They won't know how to build something from nothing. Um, I also think that it's interesting. There are other interesting ways um, of finding out. For example, one of my favorite questions is, why do you want to join such an early stage startup? And I now know, I think, how to be able to tell whether they're doing it because they think that they're going to bring the credibility to the table or they're doing it because they really want to get their hands dirty. And it's not the same thing. Talk about it. How do you how do you understand which one is it? Ooh, I think it's very case by case. But I think uh, you know, picking up on motivation is probably one of the things that I've had a you know quite a learning journey and I'm still on it. Uh, but if you ask somebody who is, you know, at an exact level and has done and has had big big roles in other companies why you want to start in the bottom essentially again you know their answers could be listen i was happiest and most productive when i was starting at the on the ground floor and i was just building something and i have this team of people and we're all builders and we all just this is what we do this is what keeps us alive you're like okay cool you're you're that kind of a person and then you have people who be like well I I come in and I bring in order and processes and, you know, I come in and I grow the company up. That like a little bit sets off some warning bells in my brain because they see themselves as an adult in a room full of children, which is always a terrible way of approaching uh, a new organization. So I can tell you that like I've, I've, I've had both and, you know, you can tell which type has been super successful and which type is like, oh, you don't maybe want to be the adult in the room. Both are very important. Uh, both uh, notes uh, that you made. First, what kind of things the person done before? If they never done that scrappy initial stage of a function or of a company overall, it may be hard for them just because they they frankly don't know how it all started and what kind of challenges were there at that point. So this is important. And then, yeah, uh, with what attitude they come. And uh, builders, yeah, you can, you can tell builders, you can tell those scrappy folks, even if they became, maybe accidentally they became big bosses and now they're like yeah. bored. And don't want to stay uh, big bosses. They now they want to back to the thrill of being on yeah. that ground floor and growing the thing up. And yeah, learning to see this is a, a very important skill. Okay, and now when you're hiring people today, when you're building your culture today, what are you building toward? What kind of uh, company, culture-wise, 
you want Sarcera to become? Um, so first and foremost, it's a culture of excellence um, and of mastery. Um, you know, I I hope that everyone on my team today and in the future, that each of them has something that they wish to master as an individual. And it could be something they do at Sorcero. It could be something else. Like they could be, I don't know, mastering, making the perfect bibimbap for, for all I care. But I, I think it's really important that they have in them a true desire to be the masters of something and to be excellent. Um, I, uh, Sorcero has a culture of sort of honesty and transparency. We just, you know, we're, we're a fairly transparent organization, you know, goals are common, wins are common, losses are common. We want that, uh, a culture of intellectual humility and integrity where I'm super happy to admit if I've made a mistake or was wrong or have someone overrule me because they are right and they have the right data. Uh, that culture and and not feeling weird if you're the boss or the manager or the senior and we're wrong like that that's not the culture of intellectual integrity and humility i think is super important and then one of true collaboration you know kind of understanding that at this stage of a startup and for the at least the next two stages we win or lose together like there is no way one of us will win and the company will still lose and those are not games we want to play so inherently this is a culture of people who are committed to the same goal. And I saw a little bit of that, which was, this is really fun. We did a two-day exec retreat earlier this week, and it was CTO, CPO, Chief Commercial, and me. And we're all in DC, and we were in office for two days uh, doing OKRs for the company, product roadmap, sales pipeline, cleaning up value prop and mission. And it was smooth. I was not without debate, but it was smooth, and it was pleasant. It was fun right through it, even through the debates. And, and, and that's a, that's a group that is united behind the same mission. And that that's really essential. So I would say mastery, excellence, collaboration, intellectual kind of integrity, uh, and, and honesty takes you a long way. And on that note of, uh, having a fun experience, although it's a challenging experience and it should be challenging when you plan your next year or your strategy. Uh, overall or your product roadmap there's a saying that if you want to someone i read it somewhere i don't remember who said it but it struck with me since then that if you want to go through tough times well hire people who are fun to work with when it's getting tough Mm -hmm. And probing for that 100%. is actually something that I said, uh-huh, I need to learn to probe for that. Because we always kind of learn how people are when things are fine, when we're hiring them or when we're asking about their wins. Yeah. But yeah, figuring out how people are when things get tough is, uh, and if they are a fun person to be around when things get tough is a very... I think useful way of uh, useful addition to the interview process overall of hiring yeah. people. Um, you know, our um, our serving head of people is is excellent, and she's completely turned around our whole hiring process and how we do it and and everything. And I'm so so grateful for the work she's done, and I'm sure the team is as well. And you know, she was keeping a close eye on this little process that we were doing because these are the company's OKRs and they'll inform the teams and she's got this whole thing going. Um, 
And I think she called out that she called that out. She's like, this is clearly a team that works well together and and has adequate gallows humor. One of my board members keeps reminding me that sometimes the thing you're going to need to get through a day is gallows humor. So whether it's gallows humor, it's uh, some sarcasm, uh, it's a bit of ribbing. um, It's great. uh, I can definitely tell you how it feels to work with a group of people who are united behind the same mission. Um, It's a pretty great feeling. It is. Okay, for our last uh, question, let's turn to the future. What do you see as the long-term goals for Cercero as a company? And what do you see how the market is changing and what kind of inflection points will happen in the market that will make market adopt the AI analytics technologies at a massive scale? Um, Such a great question. Um, Also one of my favorites to nerd out about. Uh, So let me start with the, let me answer your question about Sorcero's future and then I'll talk to you about the market. with Sorcero, as you know, our vertical we are a vertical SaaS company. Our chosen vertical is life sciences. And within that, we're starting with medical and scientific affairs. Over the next several years, three to five years, uh, we expect to scale fully into that market and become truly a command center, as it were, for medical analytics and the place where whatever team across the pharma company will go to understand medical analytics, their medical data, the performance of their products, and so on and so forth. That's that's the long-term goal. We, of course, continue to have somewhat adjacent applications in fintech and, um, you know, in, in the payer community and the provider community, but we're laser, laser, laser focused on life sciences. That's where we see the opportunity, but that's also where we see the most meaningful work for our team. Uh so markets and inflection points. Um, when I again, when I started figuring out what we we're going to do at Sorcero, I was reading, as one does, a bunch of reports from the McKinsey's and Deloitte's of the world, and two that jumped out. And there were two seminal reports that came out in 2018 that talked about medical affairs and 2025, and sort of tw- by 2025. And I'll never forget this data point: 250 billion dollars worth of prescribing behavior or medicine will be prescribed based on real world data and real world evidence. Um, and everyone heralded at that time medical affairs becoming the true third pillar in the pharma industry. I mean, in the pharma company, alongside clinical and commercial. Um, however, we have been, you know, kind of selling to and discovering with with our customers the true uh, capacity and appetite of medical affairs. And I would say that that capacity and appetite to buy technology to solve their problems, not consultants, not tools, but like truly technology to solve their problems has really started to materialize last year and onwards. Uh, This is now a market that is buying, buying fast, has got onto the fact that they cannot just continue as usual. They are now hurting if they cannot do their work. It's not just an inconvenience, it's a loss. Um, Also, you know, and just from a regulatory standpoint and COVID as well, as things get more and more virtual, their ability to have a digital platform and have a technology first approach doing their work, absolutely essential. Um, so the inflection point is now. Uh, and like I mentioned, you know, the, the medical insights management product, we prototyped it and tested out the market using a webinar all the way back in February 2020. 
And let me just tell you that there was a lot of intellectual engagement. There was zero buying behavior coming out of it. There were no signals that if this product existed, someone was going to give me a million dollars for it. Now things are different. Um, and, you know, we have demos coming out of our years because people actually are looking for a solution. So medical affairs is now and the next five years is going to be absolutely transformative for this industry and for players in it. And I'm really excited to see what we can do and also, you know, do with our partners. It is definitely exciting to see the life sciences industry and medical affairs teams getting ready for the yeah. AI technologies. And uh, yeah, looking forward to all the success of Cercero. For people interested to learn more about Cercero, to check out the products, to get in touch, how can they do that? Um, so you can always get us at info at sorcero.com if you want to drop us a note. Please sign up for a demo on the website. Uh, we would love to hear your feedback on the product. If you think you know users, potential users of the product or buyers, please also send them to us. Uh, and if you're just intrigued about all this summarization stuff I've been talking about, there's a fun little touring test on our website that you should take. And I'm, I'm curious to hear how that goes. We'll link all those links to the show notes uh, so people can follow them and check them out. And uh, Deepan Vita, thanks a lot for joining me today. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Atom. It is a pleasure.